It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, we're joined now by a guy who, uh, Evan, let me tell you something. Me and Wojo would have him on once a week, and we'd argue, and then we'd go to the game the next day, and he'd say, that was great radio, wasn't it? And we had so much fun. And he is the uh, the Hall of Famer, the only person to coach an NBA team and an NCAA team to a championship, and that is Larry Brown. Great to catch up with you. How you been? I'm good. I'm good. I'm watching these NBA games, and it's, it's like a video game to me, but uh, <laughs> I hated to see anybody lose last night. Yeah, the, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. The fact that, uh, you know, what got me to thinking about uh, trying to get a hold of you was because I remember, because I'm not, I'm 64 years old, so I remember the end of the ABA. The last time the Denver Nuggets played for any type of a championship, now you guys lost, but you coached them. Last year, the ABA against the Nets, and you see the pictures of those, and you're wearing like overalls awesome and outfits. great outfits. What do you remember about uh, that team and that championship series? Well, the the league was great um, because it gave so many people an opportunity to play that really didn't get a chance, um, especially a lot of young black kids. Uh, you know, I think the NBA at the time, they might not say it, but they had a limited number of kids of color playing in the league. Our league, the ABA, kind of opened it up for everybody. Um, and we had probably the best young talent in basketball. Um, you know, the first year we went to the um, NBA, we weren't allowed to take part in the NBA draft. They only took four NBA ABA teams, and we weren't allowed to take part in the dispersal draft. We were down to seven teams, and there were about 36 players, Moses Malone, Luis Lucas, people like that, that um, you know we weren't allowed to take. And two of our four teams won their division the first year in the NBA, San Antonio and Denver. And then the All-Star game, half the, the All-Star game was made up of NBA players like Rick Barry, Julius Serving, David Thompson, Dan Issel, Artis Gilmore, George Gervin. So it was kind of neat. It proved that, you know, the league was a quality league and there were great players playing. And I think everybody took pride in that. Um, the finals were not fun for me. Uh, you know, we Julius made a big shot in Denver to get him to go up in the series. Um, a last second shot over Bobby Jones. Um, and then, you know, we had, you know, game six, one, um, we were up 20, I think at least 20 or 23 going in the fourth quarter. And they just started beating us up, getting real physical. And we didn't respond very well and ended up losing to a great team. But, uh, I thought the team we had in Denver was pretty special. How cool is it that 
Denver as a city is back hosting uh, a finals for the first time in their history, really. Yeah, it's great. You know, the fans have always been real supportive there. Um, you know, they've had good teams in the past, but, you know, this team's really, really good. Um, and they're really, really well coached. And they probably have the best player in the NBA right now in, in Jokic. Um, you know, a lot of people were critical. I, I heard Perkins comments about he shouldn't have won the MVP and it was only because of his color. Um, that kind of troubles me a little bit. Uh, but watching him play, you know, in these series, you kind of can say he's as good as anybody. And whatever awards he gets, he deserves because of the type of player he is and the contribution he makes to the team. And that's the way it should be. Does it surprise you at all that a guy with his size, obviously when you're coaching, guys didn't extend the floor the way that Jokic does, that bigs were able to develop the way that they have, meaning they're more than just a post guy and a defensive player, that they can move the basketball passing, they can dribble the ball up the court, they can even take it on the perimeter a little bit. Does that surprise you in the evolution of the game at all? Well, I think that's what European basketball has done. You know, they don't pigeonhole kids and say you're a center when you're tall, when you're young. They work on basketball skills at an early age, and if you grow at the right level, right speed, basically, you know, a lot of guys have that kind of ability. But I don't want to be, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but last night, Miami at one time had nobody over six six playing. Um, they have a six eight center playing who I love, Bam Adebayo. Um, but when we were in the NBA, you had a power forward in the center that protected the rim. You know there were no layups. If you made a layup and drove down the gut, you had to pick yourself up the floor. Um, you didn't see as many quick outside bad shots as we're seeing now. Um, yeah, I, I think kids are more athletic and, you know, highly skilled, but um, I liked it the old way. You know, think about when you were around and the bad boys were there. Tell me who they had on their front line. They, I remember, I think they had Lambeer, you know, he was backed up. By James Edwards, had Mah Rick Mahorn. Yeah. Yeah, you had Rodman, you had Sally. Come on, think about those guys. You know, a lot of those guys were pretty skilled, but they had a post game, they commanded double teams, they protected the rim. They could handle the ball a little bit, but uh, the game's just changed. Um, and I'm not convinced it's changed for the best. Um, you know, I, I, I truly believe the kids are more athletic and do incredible things, but the game has completely changed in my mind. And Jokic, you know, Jokic can play inside, he can play outside, he can handle it. You know, a lot of the kids can do that. James, you know, uh, Davis can do that. You know, Bam does it mm -hmm. well, but, he, you know, he's six, eight and a half, and he's going to have a handful. But uh, but I think it's it's a fun game to watch 
if you like scoring. Um, it's a fun game to watch if you like outside shots and no mid-range shots. Well, it, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's funny because you, you, know, you used to say you know, your, your credo was play the right way, and when Golden State started this, they did play the right way because they moved the ball so much. It was like watching old-time basketball, the way they moved, moved the ball. But it, because of their success, it became a copycat league. And, now, like, you know, the last game of the Game 7, Boston is, what, 13 of four, 8 of 42 from 3. And I remember, Coach, if Chauncey would take a, a 3 and it wasn't a good one, you like you would sit his ass down. <laughs> I mean, now, I mean, how, how, would, how could you coach in today's NBA? The Larry Brown of old. I mean, it would drive you nuts. No, I, I, I could deal with it. I, you know, I think um, you want the best shooters taking the best shot at the right time. We have a chance to get a rebound. You have a chance to get fouled. You have a chance to get back on defense. I don't. I'm. I'm not opposed to that. But for anybody to come down and jack up a three, to me, doesn't make sense. Um, for people to say a mid-range jump shot is a bad shot is insane to me. The ability to get to the free throw line creates all sorts of problems for the team you're playing against. I remember, you know, in the last Denver series, Jokic was on the bench a couple of times with fouls. Who's their backup center? It's Gordon. Yeah. 6'8". You know, so if you get Jokic in foul trouble and sit on the bench, Denver's good, but they're not as good. And and I think that impacts that impacted the game when I was a coach. I we shot threes, we shot a high percentage of threes, but we didn't just jack up threes. Um, we defended, we rebounded, we shared the ball, we tried to get to the free throw line. We made sure we, when we took a shot, we had a chance to offensive rebound and get back on defense. Um, and I don't think that's uh, an area that you can't do in the NBA today and be successful. Um, it's just uh, it's just a different game, a different mindset. And you brought up a great point. It is a copycat league. And when you have Clay Thompson... You know, when you had Seth Curry, when you have, you know, at that time you had Durant, you even had Iguodala could make a three. When you have people that can make threes and stretch the floor but are willing passers and move without the ball and give a guy a better shot if he didn't have a good shot, you're going to win. It's just as simple as that. To me, when they they pass up – Easy layups to get Al Horford a three. That makes no sense to me. Well, they didn't handle the zone at all. Right. Um, and if you don't move the ball and move yourself, you can't beat a zone. And, you know, every time they got it in the middle of the floor on a zone, they could have attacked and then they're kicking it out. And they weren't having success, you know, shooting threes. Um and I, and I think that got a little frustrating. And then, you know, Tatum being hurt was so sad. Mm-hmm. You know, when you saw him come down on that ankle, you know that that's going to really, you know, be a factor in the game. He had no lift. He couldn't go by anybody. 
and we didn't see the best of Boston when he was hurt. Now, that was tough, but I know I'm talking too much, but you got to admire what Riley did. Now, you know, the type of, type of kid he, he picks. He doesn't have Tyler Hero. He doesn't have Oladipo. He doesn't go more than eight deep. He's playing Duncan Robinson, you know, who can stretch the floor and make a shot but has trouble guarding, so they play zone. Um, Larry comes in and he gives him some toughness. And then all the other people, you know, just let Jimmy Butler and Bam just do the things that they can do. And it was it was amazing to watch and something that anybody that loves the game would appreciate what Miami's about. So, Coach, when you watch Eric Spolstra coach the Heat, are you, like, thoroughly impressed? Just talking about, like, when you were talking about going to zone with Duncan Robinson out there and everything and being able to adjust around his players other than I've seen some coaches be, I'm doing it my way and this is the only way it's going to happen. If you can't do it, you're going to sit, so on and so on. But are you impressed? Do you think he's the best coach in the NBA today? Well, there's a lot of great coaches. Um, You know, I, I got to know him. He's He's been a video coordinator, an assistant, a head coach. It's all the result of Pat and the culture he's created. And Spolster's great. They get hard-nosed, tough kids that play the way Pat wants them to play. They are totally unselfish. They appreciate the role they have. And he's terrific at doing it. you know, he went out to the University of Washington to study Mike Hopkins in the 2-3 zone. And if you watch Miami play in these series, they played a lot of zone. You didn't hear the commentators talking about one very often they're in a zone or how to beat the zone. I, I was sitting there and, you know, Miami just stayed out on the perimeter. Once in a while, they ran a ball screen, got the ball in the middle, and like you said, they threw it out for a three. And, you know, when when a team's playing zone, Stoney, it's very hard for the, defense, for the offense to get back defensively and pick up because usually when you play man-to-man, you guard the guy who's guarding you. So in transition, you're going to be with him. It's, you know, in a zone, you know, different people are all over the court. So now you got to really match up and transition, and that's kind of that's kind of difficult. And I think it was it was a factor from Miami, and and they shot so many quick threes that you know usually playing zone, you're vulnerable on the offensive board. Well, you know, Boston didn't make them pay on the offensive board because I thought they shot so many quick threes. Uh, it's hard to believe that uh, this coming season will be 20 years since you had the championship that mm. you coach with the Pistons, of course, making it to the finals the following year. That team is still beloved here. You're still beloved here. What was your favorite part about coaching here in Detroit with the players, the fans? Just, I mean, I'm... We'll get into the, why it was only two years a little later, but I mean, <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to get into. Oh, that. <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> okay, but but um, you had a great little run here. I mean, it was amazing how good this team was. 
Well, the owner, Mr. Davidson, was unbelievable. And then following Chuck and the bad boys and what those guys did, how great they were, and how they developed a following that, you know, helped us. Um, I was lucky, you know, I came in and followed, you know, Rick Carlisle, and, uh, you know, he had really good values. So, you know, when I took over, you know, I took over nine teams. Only one had a winning record. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Detroit was the one team that had a winning record. So I walked into an environment that, you know, we had a chance to win if I didn't screw it up. Um, and then, you know, the thing I loved most was the people I was surrounded with, my staff, you know, having the best trainer that ever lived in Arnie Kander. Um, and then having a bunch of players that a lot of people, you know, thought at one time were failures. And when I walked in the locker room and watched them practice, you know, I realized how lucky I was. Um, you know, Stoney, when I, when I got there, Joe said to me, you know, we got two young players. You know, I think they can play, but a lot of, you know, we don't really know if they can play. Can you play Tayshawn and Memo? And uh, that was basically the only thing he asked me to do, and you know how good those guys yeah. were. So how lucky am I to walk in on that? And then, you know, I inherit Rip, I inherit Chauncey, you inherit Ben. We ultimately get get Rashid. You got Darvin Ham and Eldon Campbell and Lindsey Hunter, people like that that are unbelievable team players. Um, it was just uh, an unbelievable experience for me being around a group of guys that all they wanted to do was make their teammates better. And I think a lot of it came because of what Joe assembled, the ownership you had with Mr. Davidson, and then I think what Chuck, you know, built with Isaiah and Joe Dumars and that group. They, I think they set a standard, and uh, we try to live up to that. And then the following year, you guys get to the finals, lose to San Antonio. I know it sucked that McDice never got a ring, but that was a, a great run as well. And I remember game six on the on the bench, you basically telling those guys, you guys were Mike, how much you loved them and things like that. And then game seven, you guys ended up losing. And then the next thing you know, you're gone. Now, we know during that time, because you come on the radio and we get in arguments and stuff about – you know, where are you going to stay? Where are you going to leave? You eventually left. What do you think was the main reason whether they said they've had enough or you said you had enough when you look, when you look back on it now? Well, I got sick, remember? Yeah. And I missed, a, I missed a bunch of games, and we didn't do so well, and we lost the home court. Did they, bl- did, remember- they blame, did they blame you for, like, coaching the Olympic team and not taking care of your health during the offseason season? And that was the reason you didn't have home court because what Gar Hurd took over in the beginning? Well, there are a couple of things. One, you know, Eldon Campbell retired. Um, we didn't sign, re-sign Corliss, who was such an important part of our team. I mean, maybe as the best leader we had or as good a leader as we had, we let Mike James go. Um, 
you know, we didn't add anything other than Dice taking over for Memo, and Memo was a free agent, and it was, you know, that to me was an even swap, but we didn't have the depth that we had, you know, before. The games I missed, you know, impacted us not having the home court, because I didn't, I didn't realize Garhurd and Rip didn't get along when they were in Washington, um, and I think that a that hurt Rip and hurt Gar a little bit, you know, when Gar took over. But to be honest with you, Stone, I, w- I think I was fired in the middle of the year without knowing it. And I think Rip and Chauncey, you know, went in and got them to keep me. But I, there was no way I was coming back based on, you know, the way they felt. Um, they didn't think I needed to get the hip surgery and I think that affected the way they thought about me coming back. And and to be honest, you know, Mr. Davidson asked me to come back for my last year, but not coach. And and I told Mr. D that'd be the worst thing for any head coach to come in and have me sitting there. <laughs> that wouldn't be fair. Um, so I, you know, people might not want to say it, but. But I know I was gone in the middle of the year because they never felt I needed another hip surgery. And so, but, but what would they but, have? Do, what would they have done if you would have won the championship? I mean, come on, you can't fire a guy who'd won two championships. And let's be honest, if Rashid didn't leave Robert Ory, you probably would have won a championship. Well, I think you know <laughs> Rashid tried to make a basketball play. I know, and you know, and that's. It, it, he made basketball plays all year that helped us get to the finals and get to win that the year before. But, but my thing, I think I was gone, win or lose. Um, there was no way I thought I was coming back. I thought they had already hired somebody. Um, and, you know, we had a chance in game seven, really. Yeah. If you look mm-hmm. at it, we had a breakaway and you know, maybe threw the ball away, and we got in terrible foul trouble, and I did a bad job. You know, when uh, Rashid and Dice and Ben got in foul trouble with Duncan, um, I went small for a little while, and, you know, I think that gave San Antonio a little life, and they made a run. But, But, gosh, you think about that team and those guys, and how lucky, you know, I was to just be around them. Um, and being in Detroit with the way the fans responded to that team, and uh, it was just an unbelievable experience for me. Now, Coach, 20 years later, in 2003, you were hired three weeks before the NBA draft, and the Pistons ultimately selected Darko Milicic, and Recently, Carmelo Anthony has been saying that if he was drafted number two, the Pistons would have won more championships. I've always been the one that said everything happens for a reason. I don't necessarily agree that if Carmelo was on this team that your team would have done what it did. Now, the question to you is, how much would Carmelo have changed that dynamic? In hindsight, we know it's 2020, but I don't know if the team makes the move for Rashid with having Carmelo, and I don't know if that team necessarily needed more scoring, meaning that you guys were winning games in the 70s and 80s, and that's not your M.O. What do you think about Melo in hindsight? Well, I never thought about it 
us not getting Rashid if we would have gotten Melo. But when I got the job, they told me we were going to draft Carmelo. And they asked me, and I said, look, he won a national championship as a freshman. Um, I watched, you know, he's a phenomenal player. I wanted to see him play because all they did at Syracuse was play zone. And they said, no, we're going to bring him in. And they asked me who I like. And I said, well, when I used to go to Milwaukee, Tom Crane used to bring me to his practices. And I used to help run him. And Dwayne Wade was there. And I said, I really love Dwayne Wade. And then Randy Ayers worked for me in Philly. And his two boys um, both played with Chris Bosh. AAU, and he told me how good they felt Chris Bosch was. So, you know, I mentioned that to to George David, and um, I mentioned it to, you know, Scott Perry, and, uh, you know, but they were all convinced, hey, those guys are good, but we're going to, we really like Carmelo. But Carmelo never got to come in. Um, and he even wanted to come in and work out against Darko. Darko worked out for me twice, and he couldn't get through the workout. Now, he was unbelievably skilled, but he was 18 and immature and young. And I was as surprised as anybody when we drafted him. And um, to me, I think what Carmelo was saying, because he would have been around Chauncey and Rip and Ben and Darvin Ham and, you know, Corliss and that core of guys that they would have made him a better player all around and he would have flourished and we would have flourished. He would have, so, he would have come off the bench, though, or would have Tayshon come off the bench? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, you know, I don't know, but I, you know, I think, I think you got to play more than six or seven guys to be successful. And, you know, I had Carmelo on the Olympic team when he was 19 years old and, you know, he was unbelievably talented. You know, it was a bad experience that year. We had all these young kids with no practice, but I think knowing Carmelo now, like I know him. I think if he would have been exposed to the type of people we had on that team, he would have been amazing. I really believe that. And hopefully we still would have gotten Rashid. But, uh, you know, if you're going to trade Rashid for Carmelo, that's, that's tough. But I look at a 19-year-old kid 
coming out of Syracuse with that talent, being in that environment in Detroit, I think he would have done anything to improve his game and to play at the level that, you know, we know he was capable of playing. Uh, as of right now, the Pistons need a coach. Uh, the three names being mentioned most is Charles Lee, Kevin Ollie, and Jaron Collins. Uh, so we'll, we'll, I don't know who you think they should hire, one of those three or one of the uh, guys who've won titles, whether it's Vogel or, or, or Bud or even, uh, to a lesser extent, Doc Rivers. But I'm just curious what you think of the Pistons currently. Because they went through, we obviously, obviously uh, Kate Cunningham was injured this year, so they had the worst record they've had in years. We should hire me. <laughs> I'd be for that. <laughs> you got all these young players, and, you know, Cade's like family to me. You know, he his, his brother played for me at SMU, so Cade was, and his family with all our games. Um, I watched them. We'd play a game, and instead of watching the game, he'd go into the workout room and shoot shoot baskets. But uh, I love him to death. He's a high-character kid. I know Stuart well. You know, I went out to Washington when he was there and watched him play, an unbelievable high-character kid. Ivy is going to be special. You know, I was with Jalen, you know, at Memphis, and, uh, you know, George – Davis came to so many of our practices, and he was dreaming about getting Ivy and, and Jalen in that in the draft, but he didn't think it was possible. And lo and behold, they get the two kids they want. So I I think they're in the right they're going in the right direction. Um, you know, Wiseman is a talent. You know, maybe they figure out a way to play two bigs and. Shake up the whole NBA. They you could win with two big guys. Um, but I like the direction they're going in. I'm, you know, I, I coached Kevin Ollie, and then I got to coach against him when he was at Connecticut. And, you know, he's an unbelievable human being. I've, I've heard great things about Lee. Um, don't know him personally. But, you know, the... It's an opportunity, I think, to get somebody that's going to help develop young kids. And I'm not talking about a developmental coach. I'm talking about somebody that teaches kids how to play. You know, I, I get so bummed out by all these developmental coaches, and I look behind the bench in the NBA, and there's 14 coaches, and every coach, has, there's three coaches for every guy. And when I started out, it was I, I learned from Coach Smith and Coach McGuire. They had two assistant coaches and one head coach, and one of the assistants coached the freshman team. <laughs> and then when I went into becoming a pro coach, it was Doug Moe and I, frickin' frack. <laughs> two guys that knew completely nothing, trying to teach each other how to be coaches. And But everybody knew... It was one voice that they heard. Nobody was champion any player. It was just one voice. So I think they got to get somebody in there that can teach young kids how to play because they certainly have the right kind of pieces and the high character kids. And then have, have a staff that they hear one voice and the GM and the owner and the coach are all connected at the hip. 
That, that, that would be nice. That, that doesn't happen around here very often in a lot of sports. You know what? You mentioned Duran and Wiseman. What, what, you did coach them as an assistant in Memphis. Talk about them. And another local kid who's in the draft, Amani Bates. What did you think about all three of them when you were there in Memphis? And what, uh, what's the ceiling for these guys? I didn't coach James. I, he okay. left the year before, but I know Penny loved him. Thought he was a great kid. Thought he would work hard and had a chance to get better. Jalen's an unbelievable human being. And, you know, he's the youngest kid. Well, he yeah. was the youngest kid in the NBA. And he reclassified. And, you know, I, I think he just wants to be taught and wants a role. You tell him what he's supposed to do, and he'll do it. And then I think you've got to give him, you know, an opportunity to develop his game out on the floor because he can pass it and he can handle it a little bit. And the greatest thing about him, he can guard a guy if there's a switch. He's un- uncanny, a guy his size that can move his feet that well. And you you got to be able to guard ball screens. you got to be able to guard five out. And I think that's what George saw him, in him when, he, when they drafted him. So I, I think that's a good th- sign. I think Wiseman, similar, is a, a good athlete and long. At, so... Those two kids can get better. And then, you know, Stewart has become a real good outside shooter. Um, you know, and they got Bagley. They, I, I mean, they have a lot of good pieces that they got to figure out how to use them. Um, you know, Amani, to me, was – we didn't get him or Jalen in June, July, and August. And they didn't even come in to the middle of September. So they missed – you know, their freshman year, three and a half really important months. Um, and then when Amani came in, uh, Penny made him a point guard. And we had the best defensive point guard in the country in Alex Lomax. And then we had a little kid named Tyler Harris. They used to pick him up 94 feet, and it wasn't fair for Amani. And I think to put the ball in his hands, missing all that time and trying to play against little guards, older guards, you know, because of COVID, now he's playing against 24-year-old guys. It was difficult for him. And then he was hurt a lot. But uh, I love him. Uh, you know, I can't imagine being 13 years old and having your picture on Sports Illustrated and the attention you, you would create and the expectations would be so high. But, you know, I correspond with him, you know, all the time. And uh, I'm just hopeful somebody will pick him up and put him away for like two years, get him stronger, you know, be around some really quality guys that help him grow. Um, I think he has a chance to really, really, really be good. But he has to be in an environment where you understand he's young and needs to get stronger and needs to, you know, grow as a human being, but he does, has a chance. Does he need to get away from his dad? I mean, everybody says that was part of the problem here before he even went to well, Memphis. Well, his, his dad was, you know, at all our practices in Memphis and loves him. Uh, but Elgin and I got along. You know, he cares about his son. He yeah. wants the very best. Um, you know, I think he's starting to figure out how he can be an asset. The mom is phenomenal. 
but he's grown up a lot. I, I know if you look at what he did, you know, in college, didn't look great consistently, but he played for a really good coach who's a really good guy. I, I think Amani's on the right track. You know, I saw, you know, he told me, he's very close to Kevin Durant. Um, you know, I, I went to a, I was watching George Lynch's and Nazir Muhammad's son play at Myers Park in Charlotte when I was living there and they won the state championship. And the night before Durant made his first game in a Phoenix uniform in Charlotte, he came to the game and sat next to me. No security, just walked right up to stands. I said, what are you doing here, Kevin? You got a game tomorrow. He said, I just love to watch basketball. And we sat together and we talked about Imani a little bit and their relationship. So, you know, I'm hoping somebody drafts them and gives them, excuse me, gives them some time to develop. Now, talking about Jalen Dern, I just had a question about him real quick because when I look at him, and obviously I don't have a basketball mind like you do, I would say his potential could really be like a Dwight Howard-type player, down low, by the rim. Now, if you're his coach, where we talked about it earlier in this episode, everybody wants to shoot the three and the jump shot, are you coaching him to just be better than everybody else down low, or are you telling him to extend your game? Like you mentioned it with Isaiah Stewart a little bit, that he's shooting the three. Where do you stand on that with a big that has so much potential down low? Everybody get mad at me. Um, I want his ass down low. Okay. I want to because he's a willing passer. He got good hands. He can catch. Give him a shot in the counter. Counter, turning either way, and then you can expand his game and practice every day and put him through drills where he's out on the floor. Make him more skilled. You know, I think that's the way to develop big guys. You don't. You don't give a drill for a big guy that you wouldn't give a drill for a little guy because I think the big guys will become more athletic and become more skilled. But at the end of the day, you know, we had that discussion when Rashid and I were with Jalen in Memphis. You know, he wanted to play out on the floor. You know, he wanted to shoot jump shots. Um, And, you know, me being an assistant, it was hard, you know, but... I, I want to see him dominate on the block, getting to the rim, getting fouls, blocking shots, getting offensive rebound. Because I think he could be unbelievable. And I don't know who, who's going to guard him. There's not a lot of teams that have guys that are going to be able to guard him. But he's athletic enough, you know, to get out on the floor defensively and do some of the things that some of the true centers we had in the past might have struggled with. Uh, tomorrow night on, on TNT, I think it's tomorrow night, uh, new documentary, Everything But the Chip, about uh, your 2001 Sixer team and your relationship with Allen Iverson. I assume, maybe I'm wrong, that you've seen, a, you've seen it already. If you have, let us know. How, how is it? And uh, just you can talk about uh, Allen Iverson and how he's changed from when you first met him and to where he is now. Because he, he didn't, uh, as you know, his Detroit experience was not very good. Um, you know, I'm a little nervous about watching it. Uh, you know, everybody makes a big deal, Alan and I, and all the 
you know, conflicts we had and stuff like that. At the end of the day, um, he made me a much better coach. Um, I think he won four scoring titles when we were together. Um, there are a lot of things that, you know, I wish I could have done better to help him in terms of, you know, he'll talk about it all the time. You know, if he would have spent more time in the gym and taken better care of himself, you know, instead of having maybe 10 or 12 great years, he might have had 15 or 18 great years because he's maybe the greatest athlete that's, or one of the greatest athletes that ever played in the league, one of the toughest kids that's ever played in the league. And somebody, even though, you know, I had my issues and frustrations with him, uh, I admire him so much um, for what he did and what he was able to accomplish. And, uh, you know, I'm still close. I'm closer to him now than I ever was. Um, and I think we both appreciate the fact that we were given the opportunity to be together. I wish it could have been longer, and I wish I could have done a lot better job of making him understand the responsibility he had and the gift that he had. But, you know, the five years I was with him, Every night he did something that I'd never seen before. And uh, it's something that when I write my book, if I ever do, he'll be a big part of it. you got to get Wojo to be your co-author. He'll do it. <laughs> well, he probably knows as much about me and my <laughs> failures as anybody. A <laughs> uh, couple more things before we let you go. Obviously, um your college uh, career was uh, amazing, you know, winning the national championship with Kansas. People might forget that the regionals were at the Silverdome that year. But Michigan State fans, as you know, will never forget your game in 86 in Kansas City where the clock stopped for 15 seconds. I watched it again this morning just to make sure I had my facts right. They were up by four with 221 left. Uh, you ended up cutting it to two. They didn't start at 15 seconds. One, the, the, the clock stopped. Uh, you got a technical gonna, foul, though, so you actually I'm gave them cut, a point, right? I'm going to cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> that is the most – I laugh about that I all, know. The, all the time because we would have started fouling a little sooner. I got a technical, yeah. which was critical at that time, and their best free throw shooter, kid named Brown, missed two free throws. And we had to make some unbelievable plays down the stretch right. to win the game. I actually, so, on, the, on the technical, Skiles was the one who got fouled. Then you got the technical. He actually missed one of the – Skiles got like 90% from the line. He actually missed one of the, the free throws, but he made one, and that would have – you know, that was a big point. Yeah, and then, you know, when you're behind late in games, you try to steal the ball, but you try to stop the clock and extend the game. So that was, that was just silly, you know, when I think about everybody complaining about it because the technical, you know, getting a point late in the game is really, it's really pretty important. And then I think they got the ball. Yeah. So, you know, but I, I had said to everybody, yeah, I could understand people being upset, but I'm sitting there as a coach. The only thing I'm thinking of is we either got to get a steal or we got a foul. And we got to stop the clock and make the game get longer. So, 
they asked me, I said, maybe we would have started fouling 15 seconds sooner. And if I don't get a technical and they don't get the ball, what are we talking about? Yeah, that's that's true. Now, now because you were the only one who's done it, every team that needs a new coach, everybody says, well, hire the college coach. Jay Wright, obviously, people in Philly would love you know, before they hired Nick Nurse, he says he's not going back. People would love him here. Will we ever find a day? I mean, it didn't work for Beeline, uh, where a college coach will work in the NBA. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I will, I'm close to Jay, I and I was on I was on a podcast. You know, after they had lost, and I said, I just hired Jay Wright. You know, he's. He's an unbelievable coach, an unbelievable human being. He's worked with USA Basketball, so, you know, he's got to be around those guys. You know, when I was coaching, you know, in the Olympics and being an assistant and stuff like that, we didn't get to have a four-year program to practice and be around those guys. They just gave you the team, and you had limited time to practice um, and prepare. But, you know, when we lost, you know, in Greece, Coangelo said, whoa, 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 we're going to practice. We're going to pick the team every, you know, every year we're going to go away and play. And they don't remember that, you know, two years after we lost, you know, Coach K's team came in third, I think, in the world championships. So Jay's been around all these guys, all these pros. So I, I think he can handle it. Beeline, he had no NBA experience at all. You know, I try to call him, you know, and I even asked if I could come, you know, help him because I knew what he was going to be faced with. And, I, you know, we had played against Michigan when I was at SMU two years in a row. But it's great coaching. You know, the college game is going more toward the NBA game um, with this NIL stuff. I mean... You're actually coaching pros now, so <laughs> I think they need a salary cap in the in the NCAA. But you know, if you're lucky enough to be with a great owner and a great general manager, and you're all connected at the hip, and there's only one voice that comes out of any disagreement you might hit, they might be in that room. There's only one voice coming out. You can win, and you can win with a college coach. Um, there's there's a, so many good ones out there. Coach, I can't thank you enough. We can't thank you enough. Uh, hopefully they'll do something for the 20-year, and we'll get you back in town, and we'll speak to you soon. And uh, stay well. Hope everything's great. Uh, and enjoy the NBA Finals. Who's going to win? God, you know, I hate to see anybody lose when they get to this level, but Miami's a unbelievable story i mean what they've done what they've been able to accomplish with the injuries um and you know it's it's an amazing story but i don't know how they're going to be able to guard Jokic. and i just you know i love bam bam special but i just don't know how you're going to guard them you know i'll say one more thing you know we we beat the lakers tony yeah um we had we had 18 fouls, you know, to take each with Shaq. You know, we had Eldon. You know, we had more than that, but we had Rashid, Ben, and Okor. You know, and I, we were lucky in that regard because 
the only only way you could beat you know the Lakers is to stop everybody else and you know have fouls to give with Shaq when my 2001 team Matt Geiger wouldn't play and we just had you know Matumbo and then we had a rookie named Todd McCullough and we you know George Lynch was hurt we had injuries but if we'd have had 18 fouls we wouldn't have beaten them they were phenomenal but we would have made the series even more difficult. And I think, you know, I don't know if Miami can guard Jokic well enough um, to win. That's just me.